I think of the people of God. That God didn't love them because they were beautiful, because they were big, because they were strong, because they were populous. In fact, um, they were a tiny nation, didn't have anything to offer, gimpy in a lot of ways. And God says in Deuteronomy, I chose you even though you were jacked up, messed up, screwed up, but I picked you so that of all the nations of the earth, you would be my treasured possession. And he gave them a set of laws and said, obey these things, but if you don't, then something bad is going to happen. Not because I want it to, but because that's the natural consequences of your actions, and you have to see that I'm your father who loves you and cares for you and give everything in order that you might have life. But still, the people of God would disobey and disobey and disobey and went beyond the Great Barrier Reef into exile. It wasn't in Sydney, but it was in Babylon. In 586 B.C., God uh, sent judgment through the Babylonians, and they wrecked the southern kingdom of Judah. The two tribes left and leveled and razed their city, burned it down. The temple was destroyed. The walls were destroyed. And for the next 150 years, that's the way it would be. The people of God were living in ruins. They were living in destruction. They were living in devastation. And for 150 years, nobody cared that that was a state of the city. And when the walls of a city, which provided protection and a fortress against outside invaders, were broken, then they would be left open and vulnerable to attack Opponents would come and they would have their way, they would toy with them, they would mess with them, they would infiltrate them, <clears throat> they would wipe out their identity, they would uh, water down who they were, and the identity of the people of God as the people of God was no longer an important thing in their eyes. They wanted to be just like the other nations, and indeed they were, worshiping the gods, the so-called gods, the fake gods, the idols of the nations around them. And it wasn't until about 445 B.C., 150 years later, that this man, Nehemiah, heard about what was going on, and his heart broke over the walls and the lives that were broken amongst the people of God. We looked at that last week, and we, we asked this very simple question. Do you see the broken walls in your life? Do you see the brokenness in your life? Do you see the pain in your life? Do you see the broken walls in your church? Do you see the broken walls in your country? Do you see the broken walls in the church at large? When there's division and there's pain and there's brokenness and, and the identity of the people of God has become so warped and watered down by outside forces that it's hard to tell the people of God apart sometimes. And the question is, if you see that, if you see the broken walls and you see the broken lives, do you have a broken heart over that which is broken in the world? So last week we asked that question. Today we want to ask that question. If you see it, then what is it like to be a rebuilder? How do you prepare to rebuild the broken walls? Nehemiah chapter 2, we're going to read uh, 20 verses here. We're going to see if you felt like, man, God is speaking to my heart last week, or you feel like today God is speaking to you, then we're going to see how we can begin the process of rebuilding uh, for the glory of God and by the power of God and for the sake of the people of God in the world. Nehemiah chapter 2, uh, we're going to see Nehemiah is about to do something crazy, unheard of in those days. Um, a generation before Nehemiah, a queen named Esther, who some people say was a, uh, was a stepmother of the current present king, or Artaxerxes, uh, Esther the queen did another unthinkable thing in the presence of the king by asking and making an audacious request. We're going to see that a generation later, Nehemiah is going to do the same thing in the presence of another king. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I hadn't been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. 
Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what did you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because a gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I hadn't told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me, except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal wall and the, and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up, by the, I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials didn't know where I'd gone or what I was doing because as yet I'd said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who'd be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, Let's start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, Arab heard, about it, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. You're rebelling against a king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. This is God's word. This is a lot. Felt like we went through 2,000 verses. <laughs> There's only about 20 of them. But what do we see here? For those who feel like, yeah, you know what? I want to be involved in the rebuilding of that which is broken in my life, in my house church, in my youth ministry, in my church, in our world, in wherever it is, in my family, in my marriage. Um, what is God calling us to do? What is he calling us to be? Three thoughts, okay? Three things here. First thing is this. Rebuilding requires prayer throughout. Prayer throughout the whole process. Uh, both in set times and all the time. Okay? Rebuilding requires prayer throughout the entire thing. So I, I, I hesitate to talk about this because I know that last week one of our, one of our three thoughts was about prayer and how re rebuilding is solely the work of God. It's the only way that tomorrow is going to be better than today. It's the work of God. And I hesitate to talk about it, but I realize, again, as I look through the scope of 13, 13 chapters of Nehemiah, that you cannot read, just like you can't read the Bible and miss the 2,000 verses about the poor, you cannot read the 13 chapters of Nehemiah and not see that the emphasis of Nehemiah's rebuilding project is on the work of God through prayer. And if we don't preach the contours of Scripture, we're not being faithful to it. And so here it is. 
Uh, rebuilding requires prayer throughout the entire thing. You want to be a rebuilder of the broken walls? Then you're saying it's a commitment to rebuilding is a commitment to praying. And he prays in a couple of different ways here. So at the beginning, it says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. In chapter 1, verse 1, it says, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year. So Kislev is like December. Uh, Nisan is like April. Okay, so we're, we're in April right now. Basically, from December, last December until April, he has been praying. He's been broken, devastated by the broken walls, and he's gone into that place. And day and night, he's fasting, he's mourning, he's weeping. He's praying over the brokenness of his city. Now, four months later, he's been fronting to the king. Right? He, he said, I've never been sad in the presence of the king before. I've been putting on my happy face because even though for four months my heart is messed up, jacked up, for four months I've been putting on my happy face because you don't go into the presence of the absolute monarch with anything other than a happy face. Because the rule of the land is if you've got an iron-fisted ruler... You don't reign on his parade. If you're the right-hand man of the king, then you better make sure that you got the proper attire of person who's standing next to the king. Because you bring your messiness into the king's courts. He doesn't want to deal with your, he doesn't want to deal with your junk. He says, get that out of, get that mess out of here. So he says, why are you sad? And Nehemiah is afraid. You think about the right-hand man of the North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un think he's sad? What happens if he's sad? He gets killed. He gets executed. He gets blown away. And this is what it was to be sad in the presence of an absolute ruler. And so it says at the beginning of verse 3, he says, at the end of verse 2, I was very much afraid. And so he stands in the presence of the king and he says, why shouldn't I be sad? My father's house is in ruins. And he gives this amazing thing because in those days, your father's ruins and where your father is buried is huge in those days. That's why the pyramids of Egypt were formed, because they wanted to immortalize their ancestors. And so he's playing upon this thing that is dear to the heart of King Artaxerxes. you got to think about your ancestors. And he says, my ancestor's city is in ruins. I'm sad because of that. I'm broken because of that. And then in verse 4, the king asks him what he's been waiting four months to hear. He says, what is it that you want? What is it that you want? And if there's a reason for Nehemiah to be afraid earlier, there's even more reason now. Because what he's about to ask for the rebuilding of the walls that are broken goes completely contrary to an edict that Artaxerxes had declared 15 years earlier. In fact, when people tried to rebuild Jerusalem, Artaxerxes issued a decree that the, 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 the rebuilding of the, of the city of Jerusalem needs to be stopped and halted forever. Because he was afraid. And his handlers were afraid. They said, you can't do that. Because they're going to rebel against you. You need to stop the rebuilding of the walls. So the rebuilding of the city. And so what Nehemiah is about to ask for flies in the face of everything that Artaxerxes had believed and issued to be true. So he goes in and he asks for three things. He says, I want permission to go and rebuild the walls. Second, I want provision to rebuild the walls. Like, Hey, who's going to rebuild the walls? You are King Artaxerxes. Mexico ain't going to build the wall. Our people ain't going to be. You're going to build the wall. Surprise. And that's what he's asking. I want permission. I want provisions. And then the third thing I want, he says, I want protection. I want protection. I want to make it there safely. I want you to send your army officers and the cavalry with me to guarantee safe passage. Do you see how audacious a request this is? You know, King, I know that... Uh, you didn't want Jerusalem to be rebuilt. Um, but I'm sad. 
I'm broken, I'm devastated, and all I'm asking is for you to uh, let me rebuild Jerusalem. Not only that, you fund it and you send your best people to make sure I get there safely. This is crazy. Just like Queen Esther before him in the presence of the Persian king, here comes Nehemiah in the presence of the next Persian king, risking his life. He says, I was very afraid. The king said, what is it you want? He prays to the God of heaven, and then he answered. And then it says, it pleased the king, in verse 6, to send me. So I set a time, and at the end of verse 8, it says, because the gracious hand of God was upon me, the king granted my request. Right, this is the testimony of a man who understands that if we're going to be rebuilding, it's got to be the work of God. Guys, if we're going to rebuild the brokenness around us, if we're going to be agents of healing the orphan crisis in the world today, if we're going to, if we're going to want to see human trafficking come to an end, if we're going to see the mission of God spread out over the world and the kingdom of God expand, if we want to see our sister make a difference in Asia, it's not going to happen because we say, oh, we're sending a lot of money. Or because, oh, we're sending some great people out there. Oh, we've got some great teachers, some great gifts going out there. If we're going to rebuild and see the brokenness rebuilt in our lives, if you want to see your youth ministry, your 6th grade class, your 8th grade class, your 10th grade, whatever it is, your house church rebuilt, it's not going to be because you have slick methods or because you got a great campaign or, or you're promoting this well or, or you're selling pop sockets or whatever. It's going to be because you pray to God and the God of heaven is the one who grants you success. It's the only way it's going to be rebuilt. The only way. You've tried other ways, haven't you? you tried to rebuild your marriage. How's that going? How's that been working out? You've tried to build your family on your own. How's that going? You tried to raise your kids on your own. How's that working out? There's a certain point in time where we begin to realize, man, I cannot rebuild the broken walls around me unless it's God doing it. And through and through and through, it's not just at the beginning, it's not just at the end, but throughout we pray. And this is what Nehemiah does, and you, he does, and you see this at the beginning of chapter 1, he's praying in Persia. At the end of chapter 13, he's praying in Jerusalem, and all throughout he's praying. Twelve recorded prayers in the book of Nehemiah. He is absolutely convinced as he writes in his journal, the book of Nehemiah, as he communicates that to you and me, that there's no way the rebuild is going to happen unless we pray. The rebuilding of a nation is not going to happen unless we pray. And what you see is there's two ways that Nehemiah prays. He prays at set times, which is what he's been doing four months, day and night, with fasting, with praying. He's been praying. And then all the time he prays. The king says, what do you want? He says, I pray to the God of heaven. Right? Doesn't mean he went into his prayer closet. He went to the nearest chapel and he started praying. He says, in that moment, he's just shooting up a prayer. God, grant me favor in the presence of this king. All the time he's praying. We need both of these, y'all. We have to have set times of praying, praying, fighting, laboring, fasting for our church, and then we have to constantly be in a spirit of prayer, constantly be praying. You pray before you talk to your boss. You pray before you ask your coworker to come to church. You pray before you ask your teacher about the help that you need. You pray before you, you, you tell your friend about you. Constantly praying to God, not just in these set times. Sometimes I ask our people, um, they say, you know, I'm going through a hard time, struggling, house church members are struggling, my life is struggling, I'm having a hard time being motivated to teach my Bible study class. Whatever it is, how's your prayer life? It's going pretty well. Yeah, when do you pray? How much do you pray? Well, I don't know how much I pray because I'm, I'm, I'm just praying all the time. When a Christian says, I pray all the time, to me, it feels like a cop-out answer to, I'm not really praying much, therefore I'm going to say to you, I'm praying all the time. 
because it makes it seem like you're praying a lot. When really it can just, I'm praying on my, on my, on my one-minute commute to school, and as I walk from, from chemistry to geometry class, I'm, I'm praying, and boy, that's a real prayer warrior. No, he's saying, you, can have, you need those, those, those text message prayers to God, but you also need these set times of prayer. That's where the, the only way, the only way these one-second, five-second, ten-second prayers are going to avail for anything, these all-the-time prayers are going to have power, is if you've got set times in prayer. Because that's where you deposit, and this is where you withdraw. I remember hearing this, uh, this one lady who, uh, who prayed for me. Um, she was an incredibly gifted, anointed woman of God. Uh, but she was talking about the time that uh, this girl, young girl, um, terminally ill. The doctor said there's no hope left, quality of life. She's going to die in, in a couple days. And so this lady, Jean Darnell, went over to her, uh, her home. She laid her hands on her. And she prayed for her, um, and this girl was healed of her illness and, and uh, lived a, a very wonderful life. But this is what she said when she was teaching, uh, and, and always remember this. She said, I laid my hands and I prayed for her, for her healing. She said, I did not need to pray a long time then because I prayed a long time before. I was like, dang, that's the power. You pray, a, you pray four months in the presence of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, then your five-second prayer in the presence of the King of Persia is going to set the people of God free. Come on. You got to pray all the time, yeah, but you need these set times to pray also. This is what the people of God need. This is what you need. This is what I need. This is what the rebuilding walls, the walls that need to be rebuilt, desperately need. Jesus had set times of prayer. But then he would also pray. He lifted his eyes to the heavens. He prayed, oh, Father, glorify me, just like you glorify, uh, I forget what he says, when he raises Lazarus from the dead. But then he also withdraws to lonely places to pray. Daniel, same uh, Babylonian empire before the Persian empire, go three times a day he would pray. You want to be a rebuilder of broken walls? You want to help people who are defenseless? It begins, you set aside a time to pray, and then you pray all the time. First thought, you got to pray all the time. Set times and not so set times. Second thing that we see then, rebuilding is the calling of those who care. So he gets the promise of provision, protection, permission. He gets these things, and then he goes, and he rides on his horse. He's got the army chariots and the cavalry with him, and he's riding around, and he assesses the situation in Jerusalem. What is he doing? I think he's, he's got to count the cost. You know, he's got to know this is good leadership. You've got to know what you need to do in order be, for you to send forth your people. But as he's watching and seeing and surveying, his heart is being broken over the condition of the walls. Again, last week we said you've got to look honestly at the walls in your life. You've got to look honestly at the situation of your life and not excuse that, not, not write it off. Hey, you know what? Uh, other places are bad, but ours isn't that bad, so, you know, we don't really need to fast about it. We don't need to pray about it. Yeah, you know, they're not doing as well as we'd like to, but uh, let's just try a little bit harder. Unless you see the reality of the brokenness, you're not going to be moved to prayer. So he goes around and he sees the brokenness around, the devastation in the walls. And the question is, when he sees that, whose responsibility is it to rebuild the broken walls? Again, I, I mean, I, I think I said the same thing last week, but whose responsibility? Like anybody can look at, 
Oh, you know what, America is such a divided nation. Anybody can say that, but what are you doing about it? Anybody can see, oh, the church in America, yeah, we need help, we're divided along political lines. So what are you going to do about it? Anybody can complain about it. Anybody can see it. What are you doing about it? Right? Anyone can see, but leaders actually take the next step and make a difference. Haters going to hate all the time. You can do that. It doesn't take a fool to see that. You just got to have two eyes to see the brokenness around. What are you going to do with that, though? Whose responsibility is it to rebuild that which is broken? It's the people who see and the people who care. If you care, then that's your calling. If you see it and you care, and the fact that you see it and that you talk about it means that you care about it. There are people who, and this is something that, you know, we, we say this at our church a lot, our, our Korean congregation says this a lot, you, you see the, 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 the grass getting long outside, but other people don't care. But if you go up to somebody, go up to, to, to Brother Eugene or whomever it is or, 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 or pastors and say, hey, you know what, uh, why is the grass so long? I don't know. I didn't notice that. You notice that? I do. It gets me angry. Then that's your calling. You go cut the grass then. Hey, why is it? I've seen that happy Easter sign up since uh, it was up this morning and it's not even Easter. You know what? Other people didn't see it. If you see it, then you go do something about it. <laughs> if you care, that's your calling, right? Obviously, it bothers you. And God put that burden in different people's hearts. He put the burden of orphan care in Frank's heart so that he could take that, and that's his calling. And some of you are going to have that burden as well. But the question is, do you see and do you care? Because you see, when Jesus, he sees things that other people don't see. It says in Matthew chapter 9, it says in other places, Jesus looked at the crowds, and other people just saw crowds. But Jesus, it says, he saw them. They were harassed and they were helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's what Jesus saw, and he cared about it. Ezekiel looks out, and he sees this broken valley of dry, dead bones. That's what he sees. Somebody once asked D.L. Moody, great preacher, great evangelist, why are you so effective at bringing souls to know Christ? Why are you so effective at doing that? And he took him on top of a building in New York City, and he said, look down, what do you see? They, see? they said, I see people. It's like, what else do you see? He said, I see crowds. He's like, you don't get it. You don't see what I see. What do you see? What do you see? He said, I see people, streams of people walking around on a highway to hell. But that's what I see. And unless you see that, you'll never be passionate about seeing souls come to the saving knowledge of Jesus. What do you see? Because once you see, you become responsible. That's why some of us, when Jesus tells a story about a beaten up old Jewish man on the side of the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, a priest and a Levite, these religious leaders went to the other side of the road so they could avoid seeing it because if they saw, they would actually care. And if they cared, they'd have to pay a price and they'd have to do something about it. But it was a Samaritan, a hated, sworn enemy of the Jewish man who was dead, beaten up there, bleeding, who saw him and had compassion on him and said, I will go to him and I will pay whatever cost necessary in order that he might find life. What do you see? Because if you see, then you begin to care. And if you begin to care, then you begin to pray. And if you pray, then you begin to have a dream of a better tomorrow. Because Jesus didn't just see harassed and helpless sheep without a shepherd. He looked at them and he said, oh my goodness, the fields are white on the harvest. 
Okay, whatever you see, you see rich people, smart people, beautiful people. He says, I don't see any of that. I see harassed and helpless sheep, but I also see that they're ready for the harvest. They are ready to put their faith in Jesus, the Savior. That's what he saw. Ezekiel, a valley of dry bones coming to life as a mighty army. That's what he sees. What do you see? What do you see when you look at the brokenness around you? Because when you begin to care, you begin to pray, you begin to dream. And every one of us dreams, every one of us dreams of a better day, of a better tomorrow. Lawrence of Arabia, T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia said, every man and every woman dreams. There are dreamers by day and dreamers by night. Those who dream by night in the dusty recesses of their mind wake up only to find that their dream vanishes into vanity. Right? This is the Psalm of Asaph, right? It's a, it was just a dream. I, the dream, I woke up, uh, the passing fancies of this world, it's just a dream. But he said the dreamers by day are dangerous people. Dangerous people. Because they dream in their wakefulness and then they begin to take action and they change the world. It can't help it when you think of dreamers, but to think of the great Martin Luther King Jr., right? He had a dream, not a dream at night that was gone in the morning, but a dream during the day. I have a dream. That's why the great majority of us have life and the privileges that we have. Because he saw the broken walls in our nation and he dreamed of a better day for the glory of God. And so much of what we live in right now was birthed by that dream. My uh, five-year-old Elijah was learning about Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, this, uh, this school year. So I said, Elijah, who is Martin Luther King Jr.? He said, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., you mean? I said, yeah, who's, who is the good doctor? He said, he is a man who had a dream. I said, what was his dream? He said, he said that black people and white people can do the same things. As I said, Elijah, black people and white people, but yellow people and red people and brown people and green people also. And Elijah said, there are yellow people? I said, Elijah, we're yellow people. And Elijah said, no, Daddy, I am peach. <laughs> So I quickly said, and peach people too, Elijah. This was a dream of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., that he dreamed of a better day. And he's confused about that. He's like, was it a real dream, though? Was it a real dream? I think in his mind, he's thinking like, as he sleeps, he has this dream. And he said, did he really, in his sleeping moments, have this dream? I said, Elijah, it's a dream that you have of a day that's better to tomorrow than it is today, of a future that by the, well, I didn't get this theological, but by the grace of God, right, tomorrow is going to be better than today. He had a dream. And as Walt Disney once said, if you can dream it, you can do it, but he didn't go far enough. What Nehemiah says is if you can dream it, but you're the one who's got to do it because God tells people who care. If you care, 
You care about the brokenness in the inner cities. That's your calling. You care about the fact that, that church men and women are, are, are spending all of their life making money instead of leveraging it for the glory of God, and you care and you're broken over that. That's your calling. If you care about some broken areas in, in the church and you see this group of people who are being neglected, like that's your calling. If you care, if you see it, that's your burden. You've got to do something about it. And so here Nehemiah sees those things. He says, man, I'm going to count the cost. I'm going to count the cost. And then after doing that, I love this man. I love what it says. It says in verse 17, he says, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. We will no longer be in disgrace. And then their response in the middle of verse 18 says, they replied, let us start rebuilding. I love that. All it takes is one person. Whose job is this? Last week after worship service in the cafe, one of our, uh, one of our mothers said, hey, pastor, can I talk to you? She said, I want to fast. I want to fast and I want to pray for our church. I want to fast and I want to pray for the brokenness in my family. I want to be a rebuilder of the walls that are broken. Who is she? Another, uh, another sister said that there's a group of young, young single people in our church who are trying to fast and they're trying to pray. Get together and fast and pray in order that the walls would be rebuilt. Who are these people? Whose calling is this? has nothing to do with the title, nothing to do with the position, nothing to do with how long you've been at our church. has everything to do with the fact that if you care, this is your calling. It's your calling. It just took one man. And I will say this until I die. I believe with all of my heart that God still will use one weeping prophet to save a nation. One weeping cupbearer to rebuild a city. One weeping church member to rebuild that which is broken. The question is, who is that going to be? There's no reason why it can't be you. No reason why. But you count the cost. You say, man, do I want to do this? Because the last thing we see is that rebuilding will be met with resistance. As soon as you say, Let's rise and let's rebuild. There are enemies who say, let's rise and let's resist. Verse 19, but when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about this, they mocked and ridiculed us. Ha, what is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Anytime you read the Ammonites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Perizzites, the Termites, the Mosquito Bites, these are all symbolic of the enemies of God the satanic forces of evil that rise up to resist and oppose the work of God. When you rise to rebuild, you have an enemy who says, let's rise and let's resist. And it's what the enemy does. Maybe some of you, as you went to rebuild that which is broken this past week, you began to encounter resistance and opposition. Maybe your friends you said, I want to pray with my friends. And you, you asked them, hey, let's pray together at 8 o'clock and the look on their face made it look like they ate something rotten. And you, you took their hand. You're like, all right, maybe they ain't ready. Maybe they're not ready for it. And you felt that resistance because anytime there's a rebuilding, there will be a resistance. 
not saying that they're Satan, but Satan can use those things in order to distract you from the rebuild. And the question is, what will I do when the resistance comes? When the opposition comes, what am I going to do? So we typically have this like fight or flight syndrome. I'm going to fight against the opposition. I'm going to keep on working to get them to rebuild with me or I'm going to flee. And ah, maybe next time, maybe next week. Yeah, you know what? If DL brings it, then maybe I'll think about it again, revisit again. But if he doesn't do it, then I'll just go back to my old life and I'll stay in my ruins and I'll be cool with that, playing with the poop in my hands. And that's cool. But if you remember the Karate Kid, the old movies Karate Kid with Daniel LaRusso, um, super cool guy that all of us wanted to be. So there's Daniel LaRusso. He moves from New Jersey to California and he meets this girl named Allie, beautiful girl Allie at this party and he wants to, um, wants to date her, wants to you know, be friends with her. But she just broken up with this mean guy, ah, Johnny Lawrence, who sweeps the leg of bad people. And so Johnny gets mad, and I think he takes like a, a, her, her radio or something like that, her boombox, and he like breaks it. And so Daniel, like the oh, tough guy that I, he's like, you know, six feet, 113 pounds, like dripping wet. He's like, oh, I'm a tough guy. So he says, don't do that. And he gets beat up by all these guys, Johnny Lawrence and his like skeleton outfit wearing people, and they beat him up. And he's like, oh, I'm dead. Two options. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You've got a goal, the girl. You've got opposition. What are you going to do? He fights, he's going to get beat up again. He flees, he's going to lose out on Ali. What's he going to do? Nehemiah tells us that there's a third option. In fact, Daniel LaRusso tells us there's a third option. Instead of fighting in his own strength, instead of running away, he uses that opposition to go to the one person that he believes can actually help him to overcome this opposition. Mr. Miyagi. And he waxes on and he waxes off and he paints the fence and he paints the fence until he can beat him up and win the day and win the girl and great movie and then not so good, let's have Karate Kid Part 2 and the exact same thing happens. Because that's what he does and that's what we do. Opposition to your rebuilding efforts can make you stronger. In fact, that's what its purpose is. For us to not become comfortable. And it pushes us, and it pushes us to realize the limit of my own ability to rebuild and to come to the end of myself in order that I can open myself up to the limitless resources of the God of heaven. That's what Nehemiah is showing us here. You can't rebuild on your own. You're not good enough, smart enough, tall enough, and gosh darn it, people don't like you enough in order for you to do this. But you can't. But it's the work of God. You will find resistance this week. If you try to rebuild, there will be opposition. So what are you going to do? Knowing that it's going to come should prepare you to say, yeah, you know what? This week I'm going to go to prayer meeting and there's going to be people, there's going to be things, there's going to be traffic, there's going to be a boss who tries to get me not to come. I'm going to recognize that and I'm going to pray and I'm going to pray and I'm going to pray so that I can overcome and the God of heaven is going to change situations in order that I can rebuild the walls that are broken in my life. Because there's opposition and the people of God who are trying to rebuild could be tempted to despair. But look at what Nehemiah does. He says to them, hey guys, guys, the God of heaven. These people, the Ammonites, the Horonites, all these people, 
They're opposing us. But listen, we're not, our power doesn't come from the king of a nation. The God of heaven is with us. And we are his servants. And so right now you see the broken walls. You hear the laughing, mocking, ridiculing people. But the story's not done. It wasn't done for Israel. It's not for the people of God, Judah. It's not done for you. It's not done for the church in America. It's surely not done for the church in the world. It's not done for our church. It's not done for any church. It's not done for your family. The story's not over. And the story wasn't over for little Nemo either. Because the whole time he thought, this is it, my life, destined to be in this fishbowl existence, being stared at by brace-faced little children who mock and ridicule me. That's it. He thought, because I disobeyed my dad, my dad is mad at me, my dad is mad at me, my dad is mad at me. And maybe you look at the life that you're in right now and you feel like you're in exile, in ruins, and you think your father's mad at you. If Nemo could only know how much his father loved him how much his father loved him, that he would brave massive waves. He would brave shark attacks. He would brave whatever it takes. There is no ocean too vast, no mountain too high, nothing that his father would not traverse in order to get to his son, in order to show him that the story is not over yet. And there's no night that's so dark no city that's so broken, no walls that are so devastated that God says your story is over. It's not. It's not. It's not. God would go over any mountain. He would go through any ocean. He would go over any wall. He would even go to a cross in order to show you that your story is not over, that I've not given up on you, I've not given up on your family. I've not given up on your loved ones. I've not given up on your church. I've not given up on your children. I've not given up on your parents. The story is not done yet. In fact, when all of the people of God thought that the story ended at the cross, that was only the beginning. Death could not hold him. The grave could not stop him. He conquered over all of those things to show that he's in the business of rebuilding that which is broken. Do you see that? Right? Do you see that? Like, that's us. That's us. That's our story. He's still writing it. He's still writing it. He's still rebuilding. Brick by brick, he's going to do it. And he wants to use you, and he wants to use me to do that. Question is, do you see? Do you care? Do you pray? Will you dream? And then will you go, and will you rebuild the walls together? That's our calling, if you see it. And God wants to do that even through our lives. Let's pray. Let's pray. Ask the Lord, God, I want to be a rebuilder. Lord, I want to be a rebuilder. I don't want to just sit and watch. I don't want to just sit and see. Oh, Lord, let me feel. As I walk out of here, let me feel the brokenness of orphan lives. As I walk out of here, let me feel the brokenness of the darkness of China, North Korea. As I walk out of here, let me feel the darkness of the Amazonian regions of Ecuador. As I walk out of here, let me feel the darkness in the DR and Honduras where the gospel does not reign in those places. Let me feel the brokenness. Let me feel the pain. Let me sit in the midst of the darkness of what's going on 
in my Sunday school class, in my house church, in the places of our church where we need rebuilding. Lord Almighty, help me to feel that. Help me to see that. Help me to care. God, if it's really true that you could use just one, just one person, that's all you're looking for, just one person. Nehemiah stood up and he said, God, let that be me. Would you stand up in the presence of God and say, Lord, here I am. Here I am. Lord, use me to be a rebuilder of broken walls. I may never have a title in this church. I may never be famous in this life. But Lord, that I would be famous in heaven. Lord, that I might be feared in hell. Lord, that in the annals of eternity, that people would know that this one life given for the sake of Christ. Lord, use me. Use me. Use me. Let's pray for that. 30 seconds, a minute. Just pray. Lord, use me to be a rebuilder of broken walls. Let's pray together for a moment. We'll continue on. in heaven throughout history it's always been just one person one Jeremiah one Isaiah one Daniel one Nehemiah one Moses to stand between the living and the dead but God what would happen if it was more than one what if it was five what if it was ten what if it was a hundred what if it was two hundred of us rising up to take our place in selfless faith Lord what would that look like for the glory of God, for the brokenness around us. Oh, Lord, put a burden within our hearts. It means not being able to sleep at night so that we would pray that, Lord, haunt us in our sleep, that we might have a fire in our hearts to be rebuilders of walls that are broken. Lord, we need you. Oh, we need you. The walls that are broken need you. The repairers of the broken walls need you. Lord, that you would help us. And when we stand before you at the end of all time, oh God, we ask that you would find us faithful. One life, that we would give it all for you. We had one life, gave it all for us. Thank you so much. God, you're so good. We love you. Because you loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray.